chapters 1 through 10, Paul's been building his case for unity, addressing specific problems in the church. And then in chapter 11, he shifts, okay? The conversation shifts. And for four chapters, Paul is going to be talking about how we gather and why we gather as a church. Why are you here in like semi-cold, by San Diego standards, weather and the chance of rain, which is deadly. You don't want that. Um, But why are we here? Like, seriously, why are you taking a couple hours on a Sunday? This is weird. Like, what are we supposed to be doing here? What should be happening? This is what Paul talks about for four chapters. Um, And it's very timely for us. He talks about the gathering in a moment where people are doing everything they can to stay connected right now in a pandemic. The church has this thing that humanity longs for, and that's connection to Jesus and one another through a gathering. Um, What should we be doing with that? That's an entrustment, you guys. And this is what Paul wants to go to with us. And the first thing he does from last week is what? First thing in this section, here's how you gather. And he talks about men and women seeing each other as equals. Male, female, equality. If you missed that teaching, you can go back and listen to the podcast. That's how he opens up this section on how we gather. And now he moves into communion. We should be thinking carefully about this central act, the bread and the cup. How many of you guys got the little plastic cups as you walked in? You're ready to go. (sighs) I have a love-hate relationship with those little plastic cups. But, But Paul wants us to think about it. Like, what is that for? The table of Jesus. So we're gonna dive right in, okay? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Yikes. (laughs) Like not a good start from Paul. Not what you want to hear from the apostle. Imagine Paul writing to like San Diego. He's like, hey, San Diego, Park Hill, I love you, praying for you. By the way, your Sunday gatherings are more hurtful than helpful. It's like, ouch, like what could possibly be so bad? And And he says, what's bad? Verse 18. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, referencing back to the purpose of the letter. You're divided. And he says, and to some extent, I believe it. Then verse 19, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's saying, of course, you're going to disagree on things, and that's important to disagree about doctrine because you want to be correct on how God has revealed himself in Scripture. And the disagreements show like, Who is believing in the true faith? So that's necessary. But, verse 20, he said, this is different. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Wow. Okay, so verse 21 is the problem very simply. When you gather, one person stays hungry and another gets drunk. So first off, can you imagine a worship and communion church service where people are actually getting hammered? 
So no, most of us, we know communion as a little plastic cup or maybe a little goblet from a priest, depending on your upbringing. But in the first century, the church gathering was a full meal. Like imagine what's, what could be better than a long meal with friends around a table, food and drink and intimate, deep conversation. That's like the stuff of life, isn't it? And Paul's like, yes, it is. This is the stuff of the early church. The book of Jude called it a love feast. The church gathering was this meal. And in the ancient day, there was context for this. It was called the symposium. In the Greco-Roman world, a symposium was a feast followed by an important topic of conversation. Like the best symposiums had great food and then a great meaningful dialogue about philosophy or politics or whatever outside the church, like cultural symposiums. And then some of these symposiums in ancient Rome would actually go south, many of them, and they become just basically binging and drinking parties. Um, So as far as we know, the original Christian church gathering was modeled after that. It was a glorified potluck with a feast sounds amazing, followed by all kinds of speaking and preaching and scripture and singing and prayer and prophecy and everything else Paul's going to talk about in chapters 11 through 14, how to do church. So, so this is, imagine, Paul wants us to imagine you're there. Uh, imagine the early church gathering, a little home, everyone's bringing food to share and the wealthy are able to bring more and they're able to come early because they have other people doing the hard work for them through the day. So they get there early and they start digging in. Uh, And then the poor Christians weren't able to get there early. They weren't able to bring as much. They probably worked longer hours and had to come in once it was dark. And these gatherings would go long into the night because it was an intimate meal together. So picture this long, amazing meal leading up to the presentation of the word of God by one of the elders and singing and prayer. But, But you're a poor working class Christian And you finally get off work and you finally get to the gathering and the wealthy Christians are already a couple glasses of wine in and a couple, three courses in, deep in conversation in their groups. And you're like, how do you feel as you walk in? This is church. The opposite of hospitality, right? Like the opposite of generous presence is what you feel in that moment. You'd feel unseen, unrecognized. According to Paul, This was so violating to the righteousness and justice of Jesus that Paul actually says, you are no longer worshiping Jesus at church. When you come together for the Lord's Supper, it's actually not the Lord's Supper you are putting in your body. They were losing the gospel, losing the plot line. They were forgetting whose house this was and whose table this is, okay? And so so Paul wants to remind them. He's like, get out of your little selfish narrative and let's get into Jesus's narrative. Let's go to the gospel story. And then Paul tells one of the only times he tells a story from the life of Jesus, probably the only like direct story from the gospels that Paul gives us in the New Testament. And it's the original communion meal. Okay. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So Paul wants the church to get back into hospitality and generosity like their good father. And so he tells the story of Jesus's hospitality at the table. And he wants us to step in to this story. So we picture the other story. Let's picture this one. Can you guys picture the last supper? Jesus, the disciples, can you picture it? Are you picturing Leonardo da Vinci? Like perfect mood lighting and curtains and the colors are all just designer, like perfectly chosen. Uh, and everyone's face is seen and they're all on one side of the table for some reason, I don't know. <clears throat> and uh, look nothing like that, most likely. The room was super tiny probably and Jesus wasn't some white European dude. So after the Passover, this was Passover, an ancient Jewish feast that goes hundreds of years before Jesus. And Jesus is leading a Passover meal. And typically in Passover, the leader would stand up with the bread and say, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in the wilderness. Let all who are hungry come and eat. But Jesus stands up and takes the bread and says, this is what? My body. And then he takes the cup, which specifically the last cup of the meal, which was the cup of redemption, pointing to a future Messiah. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. My blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Eat this in remembrance of me. Listen, pro tip, you do not mess with the Jewish Passover prayers. You do not put your own spin on them unless you want people hostile, wondering who in the world does this guy think he is? Which is exactly what Jesus is going for. It's exactly what Jesus is still going for. Every time we eat and drink, we're supposed to be like, who did Jesus think he was? And then if we are his followers, if we're in him, oh my gosh, who do we think we are? Did we forget? And am I living out Jesus's life? Am I living Jesus' story or am I living my own story? At that last supper, Jesus declared he is the hope for all humanity. And he says, whenever you eat and drink, remember me, meaning eat in my honor, drink in my honor. And then when you leave this table, live in my honor. This is a vow renewal to live in honor of Jesus. So every time we gather and we grab the bread and cup here at Park Hill on this promenade, or whenever we get back in that building, whatever, and we have the bread and cup, every time we eat and drink, we're saying yes to Jesus' invitation to live as his body in the world, submitted to the Father, pouring our lives out for others. And listen, when we fail that and live unlike Jesus at this table, we're invited to confess sin. We confess and are forgiven and we realign with the life of Jesus. That's what happens here. And he gives forgiveness to those who ask. And so here in chapter 11, Paul's like, hey, church, church, you're eating and drinking the bread and cup every week and you're forgetting the host is at the table. You're forgetting that the owner of the table is present and you're dishonoring him with your greed toward one another and your lack of hospitality and your thoughtlessness toward the community and your addiction to your own comfortable lives. So Paul says, verse 27, he says, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Okay, whoa, he's warning against 
eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? First off, this does not mean that you have to somehow be worthy or be sinless in order to eat and drink, okay? The whole point of communion is that you're not worthy. (laughs) This meal's for sinners. This meal's for all. The point of communion is that Jesus takes your place, his body breaks for you, his blood pours out in your place and he removes your sin and guilt. And when you're a wreck and when you're in the middle of an addiction and when you're going through a divorce or you're feeling the after effects of your sin and the carnage of your own mistakes, it means God is chasing after you in Jesus. God is pursuing you in the best sense of the word pursue, he's pursuing you. Paul wrote in Romans 5, God proved his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And now he says, come follow me. Come live that way. And the moment you turn around and admit your need of God, he rescues you. And he puts you on the long path to healing in the new family of Jesus, where broken people become his own family around this table. That is the gospel. That's the gospel you're invited to receive and be saved, be included in God's eternal family, you guys. So, so eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, when Paul's like, don't eat and drink in an unworthy manner, he's not saying you have to somehow be sinless in order to eat and drink, okay? Also, and this is the perspective of our leadership here at the church, we believe eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, it's not some kind of code for like taking communion as a non-Christian. You hear me? So like when Paul says, I warn against eating and drinking unworthy manner, he's not saying I warn against taking communion as a non-Christian. We don't think that. For the simple reason that Paul's writing this letter to Christians. This is a letter to Christians and it's a warning for Christians who are taking communion unworthily. Paul isn't warning non-Christians, he doesn't have them in view. He doesn't have in view people who are taking genuine steps toward Jesus, but haven't quite decided yet. And they're kind of, he's not thinking of that. By the way, if you are here, or if you're listening to this later or whatever on the podcast, and you are not a follower of Jesus, wherever you are in your journey, you are welcome here. We want you to come to know Jesus and be saved. For the past three years, people have been coming to know Jesus here. Just last gathering at the 9 a.m., this 17-year-old girl named Abby comes up to me and says, I just became a Christian today um, based on this moment. Uh, I was not, and now I do follow Jesus. I did not believe or confess him as Lord. Now I do. And I described baptism to her. She's like, I am definitely into baptism right now. Let's do that ASAP. There are people that have been coming to Jesus and receiving eternal life in Jesus, because in Jesus is the only place where eternal life is found. And we want that for you. We absolutely want that for you. And so come explore what that means. (laughs) Be be a part of the woodwork here. Explore the gospel and, and what is the church and all of that. You're welcome to get into a community group. If you don't know Jesus, make friends with people who are really serious about Jesus and the gospel. You're welcome to come forward for prayer. You're welcome to sign up and serve and alongside dozens of amazing volunteers who make this thing happen every week, anything. You're welcome here. And we will be straight up with you that we want you to come to know Jesus and join us in admitting your need of his forgiveness and healing from all of our brokenness 
But along the way, you're a thousand percent welcome. Where else are you going to be exploring these things except in the house of God? So what Paul means here, to get back to the text, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner is not, hey, you need to be sinless in order to eat and drink. No, here's what Paul's saying. Hey, Christians, you who claim the name of Jesus, there is a painful irony going on here. As you eat and drink the body and blood, you are simultaneously sinning against Jesus's body and blood family, the church. You knowingly withhold generosity and hospitality and hold on to bitterness and greed toward other people in Jesus' body and blood family. And it is painfully ironic and shameful toward the host of this table whose body and blood was generously poured out for you. This is the warning. And so Paul's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We need to take a step back and examine ourselves examine ourselves and ourself. Really think about what's going on here. Really see the room. Do you see the body? Do you see Christ's body? Back in chapter 10, we read two weeks ago, Paul says, when we eat the bread, we're somehow participating in the body. We take that piece out of that loaf. He's like, we're all coming from the same place. In some mystical, invisible way, we honor Jesus through his meal. And when we do that, we become uniquely present to God and God becomes uniquely present to us. And we lean into our union with God together as his children. In other words, you guys, through this meal, we abide in Christ as a family. We talk about being with Jesus and abiding in Christ a lot here at Park Hill. And we usually mean as individuals, which is important. You need to have an individual prayer life and read the scriptures and know what it means to fast and pray and practice silence and stillness and all of that. That's abiding for you and Jesus. But Paul says there is a specific way we abide in Christ as a whole family and it's through the meal. It's through the meal the bread and the cup. I love how Dr. Gary Bashir says it. At the meal of Jesus, the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. Love that. We believe God's uniquely present at this table. So Paul's like, treat it that way. Treat it that way by celebrating one another generously and seriously. Take this seriously toward one another. You know, one of the problems I think we have as humans, maybe I'm alone in this, I don't know, uh, we tend to take all the wrong things seriously. At least I do. I don't know. Am I alone? Uh, we, we tend, all the wrong things I get super bent out of shape about. Um, like I get anxious about some random thing I saw on the news thousands of miles away from me that I have zero control over and I toss and turn. I can't sleep. And it's like, does it really matter? I guess I'm alone. I'm totally alone in that. I feel really alone right now. And... <clears throat> I mean, does it really matter that my kid spilled juice on the couch cushion? Like that much? She's like, yes, it does. She was like, amening. Does it really matter if my coworker's doing their job wrong and it'll only affect me a little bit, but I still go out of my way to like overcorrect them? Am I really going to obsess over that? So you and I, at least me, I take all the wrong things seriously. And the sad part about that is all the things that really matter, I'm often like, meh. Strained relationships, 
broken people all around me every day, the poor, or just my next door neighbor's life. It's like, oh, it'll work out. They got it going on. I'm good. Meh. And Paul's saying the Lord's Supper can get like that for us. This was the problem in Corinth. And we need to ask ourselves honestly today, is this my problem? The central act that realigns us with Jesus's life and our union with his life and how that leads us to live toward others, the central act that reminds us body and soul. Is that meal becoming meh for any of us? Paul has a gut check for us. Verse 29, 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That's a New Testament way of saying you've died. Verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Okay, there's a lot there, you guys, but the key is verse 29, that phrase, discerning the body of Christ. What does it mean to discern the body of Christ? In context, it means recognizing everyone here. Recognizing everyone in the congregation, the people you are family with forever, truly seeing and serving everyone in this gathering. The loaf that we're all a part of is this body we all came from, seeing the body and seeing one another well. When we all break our pieces off that loaf, we're seeing that we all came from the same source. We receive our life from Jesus, the head of the church. And so we no longer see ourselves primarily as autonomous individuals with my car and my fence and my garage door opener that closes me into my property. Like we don't see ourselves that way primarily anymore. Our personal rights and wealth and freedoms no longer are the most important thing about us. But now, since we are one body, the most important thing is the community. This is what it means to discern the body. This is what it means to do communion worthily. And so Paul's like, you need to discern this body reality when you gather. And so if there's anyone who should refrain from eating and drinking the bread and the cup, it's the follower of Jesus who could not care less for the poor, the poor in this gathering, and the poor in their own immediate community, the broken and hungry people who are being ignored. Paul's like, you need to see the body. You are not an island here. You are needed and you need all of us. Because the poor are our body, just like our arms and legs. Take care of your arms and legs, right? Take care of the church. And here's how Paul lands the plane. Verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, that's Paul's, <laughs> that's Paul's name for church, to eat. <laughs> I love it. When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who's hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. He's like, there's more to say, but you, I'm going to let you wait. <laughs> so that phrase is the key. Eat together. You should all eat together. That word in the Greek means wait expectantly on each other. Go out of your way to be hospitable. 
Is that you? Is that how you treat people in this church? I know there's cultural differences. We don't do symposiums and love feasts like that. We do emphasize community, you guys. As best we can, we encourage every single person in this church to commit to an intimate community. If you wanna sign up for one, we are open for that, for signups for a community. What does that look like for you? We would love to bring you in so that this can happen. Hospitality can be exercised. How does this look in your life? Walk up and welcome each other at church, over the top. That's how you live out the story of communion, okay? Now, there's so much that can be said about this passage. In fact, so much so, we're spending next Sunday in this passage again. <laughs> uh, we're going double duty into this passage. And Dan Braga, a pastor of Neighbors Church, who we sent out to plant, He'll be back here to preach this from his own story and his neighbor's church update and all of that and how the bread and cup unites us as the church of San Diego, two churches in the same city. It's gonna be beautiful next Sunday. Uh, but so to bring us to the table, here we go. What does this mean? What are some takeaways? Two thoughts and then an invitation. Thought number one, the meal of Jesus must be the center of your life, not off to the side. You and I need to see the bread and cup as the center of gravity in our lives. The center of our church, of our days, not some side thing like something we only think about in the margins of our time if we happen to find time to go to church or whatever. In the early church, you guys, and for most of church history, the center of gravity in the church gathering was the meal, the bread and the cup. And now in most Western churches, it's a little bit different, right? I didn't grow up in a church where every Sunday was communion, um, which was fine at the time. Communion was a once a month thing. I don't know if you grew up where communion was kind of like once a month or less frequent. Um, so instead, what was the center of gravity? It wasn't communion. Practically, it was what? Preaching, a sermon, yeah. The sermon was, a, and there's all kinds of reasons for this in church history. The Protestant Reformation brought a return to like biblical interpretation to the center. It's amazing and vital. And I'm, I'm partial to sermons. So I, they're good things. Preaching and teaching is vital in the life of the church. But listen, nowhere does the New Testament say that preaching gospel or teaching Bible study is to be the center of gravity for the gathered church. Nowhere. And as we walk through chapter 12, we're gonna see a long list of other activities Paul wants us to be doing. Tongues, interpretations, words of wisdom and knowledge and prayers, prophecy, administration, encouragement, serving, helping is one of the gifts. All, and in fact, Paul even seems at, at times to put prophecy higher than even Bible teaching in 1 Corinthians. You're gonna see that, which is very interesting. So all that to say, over time, the meal of Jesus has shifted from being the centerpiece, the center of gravity, to more of a side thing. If you've ever been to old cathedrals in Europe, the architecture tells the story. Many of those cathedrals, the, the buttresses and the artwork is designed to force your eyes to the middle of the front, which is this giant table bolted into the concrete slab where the bread and cup is. And the pulpit is still in the center. I mean, still in the front, but it's on the side. As if to say sermons are important, hearing the preaching is important, it's up front. Um, but what's most important in the center is the bread and cup. We're really here for the meal of Jesus is the message in that architecture. 
But in many modern churches, it's no longer the case, right? I mean, even at Park Hill, we, I'm in the center right now. Um, and the little plastic cups are under a tent over there. So it's not all bad. Don't get me wrong. The scriptures are central to the life of the church 100%. But I would argue from Paul in 1 Corinthians and from Israel's story, Passover, and from Jesus in the upper room, the primary reason you and I gather here is not to hear Evan preach. But it is around the bread and the cup. We come together in Paul's language to eat. This is how we remember Jesus. The gospel becomes in our body at the cellular level through the bread and the wine. And we remember how God came in Jesus in a body to make one body interdependent parts all over the world. That is the center of our gatherings as a community, global community and Park Hill community. And it needs to be the center of your life as an individual. So as we're gonna come to the table and I want us to sit with that question, invite the Holy Spirit, like Holy Spirit, come, help me obey Paul and examine myself. Where is the gospel in my life? Is it in the center or is it on the side? I still love it, but it's just not centered. Is the story of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and life often the periphery of my hours and days and budget and iCal and work and self-image and professional life, all of that? Like, yeah, I'm a Jesus girl or Jesus guy, but that's kind of this thing that I have. It's not permeating. Where is the gospel in my life? And then number two, the meal of Jesus should shape and change your life. There should be change. There should be shaping. This is something we as leaders feel really responsible for. How we live, do church, do life. The meal should shape all of it. And we as leaders are responsible for this. And sometimes we look at the text, we look at the table, we listen to the spirit. We're like, oh shoot, we got to change. We have to repent. That's what leadership is made of. A lot of repentance. And, and, and so what does this mean? Our leadership is so committed to leading this church that when we read the scriptures, I would argue if we don't change our rhythms in response to the scriptures, it's not really Jesus that we're following. It's our upbringing, our tradition, or what we're comfortable with, right? So we have to be willing to shift our routines and rhythms in obedience to Jesus. This is what we've done with prayer, right? Like in communities and prayer, like we moved all communities off of January and put them in February and March so that we can respond to Jesus and pray every Tuesday with our time. That was in response to Jesus. It's kind of a form of repentance, turning in response to Jesus. And so when it comes to the meal, you guys, the bread and the cup, I think we need to shift. We need to be willing to shift everything. If it means making the meal more centered, And I just want to say, honestly, I don't think we're there yet as a church. Park Hill's three years old. And from the beginning, we've been doing weekly communion, which is important. It's a high value. We've always done it. But to be dead honest, you guys, (laughs) I've never been a huge fan of the plastic cups. (laughs) Something tells me Jesus and Paul didn't have a mass plastic cup distribution in mind when they raised the glass and talked about a love feast and the loaf. 
you know? I mean, Paul, Paul rebuked the church for getting drunk during communion. So either that's a lot of plastic cups or something else is going on. So, so for now, after studying the passage and after talking about this as a team and really saying, Lord, where are we at? The team is still very much in process on this. We are actively in process. I'm pretty sure Jesus wants us to always take communion together. Always take it together at the same time. Meaning, no, like everyone go off into a corner with the bread and cup and do it on your own. We've done that before, never again. Never as a private individual because this meal is a declaration of unity. I know we've had a live stream that many of us have benefited from. That's absolute best we can do so that all of us can be present. And we valued like truly live, pre-recorded. There's nothing wrong with that, but we wanted to set aside a moment when we're all making a statement with our time. We're in this together. We're committed to that. This is how we recognize, we see, we recognize the body. We can actually see who needs to be lifted up, who needs to be brought in, who's missing. That is discerning the body. And that is what it is to live into our mysterious union with the Father. So that's it, you guys. Those two questions. Can we ask the Spirit, all of us, where is the gospel in my life? As a follower of Jesus, is it central or is it on a margin somewhere? What would it look like to come back? So the second question, what needs to change? What needs to be removed to center the meal, the gospel, seeing the body? And finally, I said there'd be an invitation. And, and I wanna invite you who don't know Jesus. Last, again, last service, there's just a wonderful young lady who clearly intentionally responded to the invitation to be in the family of God, knowing she was not. Because in Jesus is eternal life and there is no life apart from him. We believe Jesus when he says that. So the invitation is as wide open as the universe is. Like God has his arms open saying, come join my family the only requirement is trust. Trust that he is who he says he is and that his forgiveness will wash you of all your sin. His death on the cross was to make a way to God for you. So you no longer need to come up the mountain. God came down the mountain. He's the unique God of all the gods who came down the mountain and all the religions. And he came to you. So the invitation to those of you who don't know Jesus, if you're walking by or if you're on a rooftop or whatever, if you don't know Jesus, like this is the place to explore what does it mean to say yes to eternal life in Jesus? He, Jesus is good. He is worth it. And joining this family is where you experience his life. So there it is. We're gonna sing a song about communion. And, and then I'm gonna bring us into eating and drinking. And we'll just wait for a while. Wait for the spirit. We're not in any rush. If you are in a rush, you're free to, free to go before we end, but we're just gonna let Jesus speak to his family at this table.